For months, Spider-Man had been dealing with an existential crisis. You see, his long-thought-dead clone had returned, and his life was turned upside down. But throughout all these turbulent times, there was one glimmer of hope for Peter Parker. His wife, Mary Jane Watson Parker, was pregnant with their first child. That child was the glimmer of hope that Peter Parker had, and his responsibilities as Spider-Man changed. He could no longer just be Spider-Man and still do what he was doing before. No, he had to start a new life, a life away from all of the craziness that was Spider-Man. Spider-Man during the Clone Saga. And so, an idea was proposed. A four-issue miniseries where we talk about Peter Parker's final adventure. And that's what the title of that miniseries was. And it's a miniseries we've not covered yet, but we've covered the result. And so, we have to cover it now. It's time. Episode 61 covers the not-so-final adventure of Peter Parker, where the story behind the story is almost as interesting as the story on the page. Whoa! I don't think I even want to hear your story. All of you must hear the Scarlet Spider story. My name is Ben Riley. I'm related to this reality's Peter Parker. How? I'm his clone. Or maybe he's my clone. We're not sure. I'm the real Spider-Man. I don't know what kind of mind game this is, but I'm the real Spider-Man. The real Peter Parker. You see! Clones! I thought I was that clone. I tried to stay out of Peter's life by taking on a new identity. I dyed my hair, changed my name to Ben Riley. When I became a costume hero of the Scarlet Spider, it really made him angry. But the next big blow came from Dr. Kurt Connors. He discovered that, according to our genetic structures, it might be Peter who was the clone, not me. That news pushed Peter Parker over the edge. Now he hated me with a passion. This is starting to sound like a bad comic book plot. It gets worse. Why didn't you just tell me I was a clone? The cloning process has proven unstable. You're coming apart. Welcome back to the Clone Saga Chronicles podcast. This is episode 61 of CSC. And we're getting we're going to go a little ways back in our look back. Thus far we've covered most of the miniseries except for one notable exception, The Final Adventure. We covered in episode 59 that Peter nearly died and his powers began to make their return and he slowly has been coming back as a spider character. But we've not covered why he lost them in the first place. That is this story. But, of course, I don't do this alone. Well, most of the time, that is. I've assembled our panelists. Gerard Dillatour is the host of Mayday Mondays. Greg Bashansky is the host of Spectacular Radio. Donovan's the host of the Comic Book Film Review. And Joshua Labbertoni is the co-founder of the show. Welcome back, guys. Guys. Wait, where, where did everybody go? Did everyone leave the office? Hey, there's someone. You there. What's your name? Alex. Alex? Wait, Big Al? Is that you? Indeed it is. All right. Well, uh, you want to talk about Final Adventure? Sure. Everybody else bailed on me, so. <laughs> All right. So, of course, we have Mr. Big Al from Spidey-Dude.com. He is our leading contributor. Alex, tell us what you've been doing on the front page of the site. On the front page of the site, so far, it's been a bit of a slow start to the new year. Uh, it's mostly been a few spider quotes, a little bit of art sprinkled here and there. Unfortunately, time crunch, time being uh, what it is these days, I haven't had time to properly commit to too many reviews, but there'll be some things down the pipeline in the year to come, I'm sure. I saw you're reviewing Renew Your Vows. 
um off and on yeah the it's 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 a tough gig trying to properly form all my uh thoughts on that and at the same time genuinely just find the time because i've only got weekends to spare right now and family yeah. is uh Darn family you know. getting in getting in the way of your hobbies uh, i understand exactly <laughs> i'm gr- i'm greek as well so like there's there's a lot of family to go uh, around of course y- you know yeah i can make so many stereotypical greek jokes right now i'm not going to uh, i've made i've made those jokes already don't worry <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for being on the show thanks for uh, thanks for being on uh jokingly uh, uh, real talk we were uh, originally, I was planning on doing this as a solo episode, and I recorded it, and I was like, man, this really could use somebody to bounce off of. And Alex so graciously decided to uh, offer his his lovely British tones uh, to this episode. So, welcome, Alex, to your very first episode of CSC. Uh, you, it's nice to be here. And uh, you might have remember him from uh, the Mayday Mondays episode, talking about Spider-Verse. So... Uh, <laughs> If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out on uh, the Mayday Mondays feed. Um, so we're going to kind of cover this oft-overlooked story that was actually supposed to be quite different. Uh, Alex, feel free in to jump in whenever you like. I'm, I'm going to let Glenn Greenberg kind of explain. Of course, from Life of Riley, uh, the story behind Final Adventures starts off very simply and becomes very complicated. Glenn will try to keep this as brief as possible in the telling. Otherwise, this would be the longest, one of the longest columns in history. In a nutshell, Bob Ulensky wanted a limited series that would set Peter Parker up with his wife, pregnant wife Mary Jane in a new living situation far away from New York. Bob assigned the limited series to Tom Brevoort and Glenn Greenberg to produce. Bob's mandate was this. Mary Jane and Peter Parker begin a life in a new locale. Something happens that forces Peter to put the costume on one last time. Spider-Man, he must solve the crisis as Mary Jane goes into labor. The series would end with Peter emerging triumphant and arriving at Mary Jane's side for her to give birth to their baby. Those were the marching orders, and Tom and Glenn set out to put together the creative team. Boy, that's exactly how it happened, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sure, I sure do remember that brilliant ending to number four when, like, uh, we saw Baby May. Yeah, who hasn't, who hasn't been named yet? Or we don't even know what the gender <clears throat> is yet. Anyway, no, that's true. We find that out um, later on, don't we? Yeah, we haven't, we haven't quite even got to that point in our in our Clone Saga rundown. So that's that's after onslaught, isn't it? Yes. When we get revenge, oh Jesus! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually, um, I actually, a bit quick note to the. To the uh, listeners, I am a image researcher on some comic book related books, uh, and I actually had to read up and, you know, virtually read all of Onslaught yesterday. In addition to um, some a little some Clone Saga related stuff, I had to write about you just traveling less than a hundred words, which wasn't easy. That, that 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 is that sounds painful, actually. Yeah, it, it was, but the the information that was already there was shockingly inaccurate like did do you remember that time when scryer working for norman osborne injected uh, judas traveler with a drug and that's how he got his superpowers do you remember that happening in the clone saga because i sure do according to this this book i was working on uh, i don't recall that being mentioned in the osborne journal no no sure I, I i seem to recall it was a little bit different in the osborne journal <laughs> similarly 
I, I seem to recall that Kane didn't deliberately frame Ben Riley for like multiple murders because he just he just hates him that much. <laughs> yeah, but... that, that didn't. <laughs> no, that was Jacob Raven taking six months to to say I finally have the evidence. I finally yeah. have the evidence. <laughs> anyway, uh, all right. So uh, back to this. Back, back to life of Riley. We decided mm-hmm. fairly quickly to hire Derek Robinson as penciler. He was a talented artist who previously enjoyed a long run on New Warriors and was always happy to do Spider-Man work. He did the bulk of the Spider-Man work for Tom and and Glenn on various eight-page stories and annuals. And, and I seem to recall he did a fill-in on Adjectivalis during, uh, during Exiled, I think, was the... Okay, I was wrong about him doing the uh, adjectiveless issue. He actually did um, the amazing Spider-Man issue filled in for Mark Bagley during the Exiled arc, which was really quickly. I just looked it up. It was Amazing 405. So Amazing 405 featured Derek Robinson artwork. He he did a um, a backup story in um, one of the Planet of the Symbiote Super Specials as well. It was it wasn't really Clone Saga related. It was just it happened to be in there. And he did um, Dead Man's Hand, which is yeah. like it, it's it's with Carry On, but it's like after the Clone Saga. Yeah, they they put that actually in the Epic Book Six. Yeah, I think that's the last thing in Epic Book Six. Yes. the last story anyway. Yeah, which makes kind of no sense anyway <laughs> uh it, it really makes no sense now given like what we know about carry on because they didn't they wreck on him even more like after that uh, well yeah well i i think all of dead man's hand did was uh solve once and for all who the original carry on was which was a modified clone of miles warren oh. <laughs> uh, anyway uh so they were uh glenn was particularly enthusiastic about working with derek since uh, he and Glenn become pretty friendly by that point. In terms of the writer, Fabian Netzia, thank you, Gerard, for uh, helping me pronounce that last name. Uh, Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Was one of the hottest writers in comics, having just finished a long and successful run as one of the core X-Men writers. The X-Men connection alone was enough to ask him to write the series, since the X-Books were all the rage. But Tom and I also thought he'd simply do a great job. And of course, Fabian and Derek had worked so well together on New Warriors that we thought it'd be cool to reunite the team. Tom and Glenn never really got the chance to work with Fabian when we took over as the editors of New Warriors, so he was already on his way out, uh, on his way off the book when they got it. So Final Adventure was the first real opportunity to collaborate. Okay. So that's that's kind of the, the background of... of how they set this miniseries up uh thoughts on that alex it sounds like it was a fairly simple idea as a fan at the time i'm not sure how i feel about like having the whole baby situation resolved outside of spider-man oh, like, i think that would oh we'll get to that yeah <laughs> but yeah you're right i i think that it was kind of strange to to kind of literally shunt uh peter and mary jane off to kind of shunt them off into this little side quest. It speaks to how they were, you know, how they were really committed to the idea that, you know, Ben is the real Spider-Man, Peter is the clone. And because he's he's because he's not the clone, he's not the real Spider-Man, he gets second fiddle, you know, he gets he he gets shunted off to this mini series where that's his that's where his story is resolved. Whereas, you know, even if even if he was the clone, you'd want his story resolved in a actual Spider-Man comic book. Um you know, maybe alongside Ben, yeah. Um, but you know, it, it, it sort of it, that sort of the the, um, the philosophy of like resolving it in this little mini series is almost 
doubling down on the kind of the animosity uh, animosity fans sort of felt at the time about the treatment of the character. I, I think their heart was in the right place, but I think that the, yeah. the, the, the there is a little bit of malice that comes across. In, I don't, unintention, yeah. Unintentionally, of course. Yeah, whereas, whereas nowadays it's, it is more intentional. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's not even get, let's not even go there. We uh, won't open up that wound. Yeah, yeah, the... <laughs> At the time we're recording this, this is early early January, so um, this will probably be out in uh, mid February. But uh, yeah, I uh, yeah. con conspiracy is just con conspiracy. What? I wasn't I wasn't even thinking of that. I was thinking about something else. But like you know, it, it says something that you have multiple choice <laughs> in regards to, in regards to like uh, the modern Spider Office and their interactions with fans. Ah uh, yes. Oh, so many interactions with Steve Wacker. Steve, I miss you. Mm, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, Steve, Steve fed uh, 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 Josh and Don cookies. Well, that's that that almost makes up for back in black. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, I'm going to do the rundown. Uh, uh, this is so strap in. <laughs> Here comes the rundown. <laughs> All right, feel free. This is a long one. <laughs> yes, this, this is a long rundown. It, it was so long, it wouldn't let me paste it in the window. Let's put it that way. Oh, uh, oh all right, cool. <laughs> Credits for the series are Fabian Netzi, the writer. Derek Robinson, obviously the artist. Final Adventure number one starts with Peter doing some research. He's got his Untold Tales Ditko-era glasses as a lab assistant at this alternative, mm-hmm. <laughs> at this alternative research group. Peter sees a very familiar-looking lead, uh, lead scientist... As he's going through some files. He's been in Portland for about three weeks, and he's loving every minute of it. Dr. Monica Sapos is arguing with the lead scientist, Dr. Schwimmer, over the use of synthetic skin grafts to be performed on a terminal patient. After doing this in front of Peter, Schwimmer talks to Peter and remarks, It's quite ironic that these two found each other. You see, he was the guy who was performing the original experiment that led to Peter Parker getting his powers. Ooh, Peter Parker's not well. I, uh, uh, Bye, Peter. Uh, I might have given you radiation poisoning, but that's okay. Uh, Peter drives home. Yes, he's driving. I'm glad you mentioned this, because I was going to later on. <laughs> and, and, and MJ doesn't think he'll get the hang of it. He comes to the house. And, so he walks in, and the house is nearly on fire, thanks to MJ burning din- din- uh, dinner. MJ is having pre-baby worries that they won't be able to look after a little one, but Peter reassures her via Oprah that everything's going to be fine. <laughs> Can you tell this was made in the 90s? Yeah, yes, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, even even what? Well, when did Oprah retire? 2008? Yeah, but like, to, in, maybe it's because of when I grew up, but to my mind, she was like really big in the 90s, oh. like around this era, around 96. It, this is when she was like mega, mega, mega big. Yeah, and then she and then she reached a second apex when she's like, you get a car, and you get a car. And you oh, get yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, they order pizza because, well, that's what you do when you burn dinner. That's also what you do when you're from New York. Exactly. Uh Peter can't sleep. He spent the last seven years of, as Spider-Man, so he sleeps for wimps. He crawls the walls, literally, and we cut to the Daily Bugle. Ken Ellis is looking to do a follow-up on Peter on the Parker is killing people story from the infamous trial of Peter Parker. Uh. 
Robbie is trying to get him to drop it. And <laughs> Sorry. Kill. Yeah, that's fine. Oh. I was coughing. <laughs> uh, Robbie is trying to get him to drop the story, and Ken just wants more info for the follow-up to his Scarlet Spider story. Next, we are introduced to the man with the fatal skin disease. He's a convicted felon who's being used as a test subject because you don't have rights when you're a convicted felon. Okay. Peter looks into the matter and tries to help him. His reasoning is the way they are trying to cure him is similar to how he got his powers. He tries to check up on him and does more research. Monica tries to do her own experimentation without permission of our lead researcher, and Dr. Monica stumbles onto Peter's research. Peter, meanwhile, is doing Lamaze with MJ, and they walk home because MJ doesn't trust Peter Parker driving. In fairness, I wouldn't either. I've seen the spot in my bill. Yeah, it's true. And and, and uh, the thing that just boggled my mind was they walked 30 blocks. A pregnant woman walked 30 blocks. Now, if she's as late term in the pregnancy as they're trying to portray her as, there is no fresh hell way that any woman's uh, sane enough would be willing to walk 30 blocks unless she's trying to pop the baby out right then and there. I'm from England, so I don't know, even know what one block is, but I'm 90% sure I know quite a few women who are not pregnant who would never walk 30 blocks in, in, in any condition. Yeah, that's like... A, uh, that's probably like two and a half kilometers. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I'd try, I, I wouldn't walk that far, yeah. <laughs> let alone anyone else. Yeah, I mean, in Americans, we're extra lazy. We have cars. So, uh, you know, I, I've been to England. I've, I've walked around London and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is why this is why English people are skinny. Well, I'm not, but I'm also Greek. So <laughs> we just we, we have a we have a purely meat based diet, pretty much. That's true. Yeah. Greeks. Greeks do tend to um, eat a lot of meat. We like our. So do you Texans? Yes, we do. I mean, I, I, I'm an hour away from a um, tourist. I mean, a restaurant that uh, serves a 72 ounce steak. I'm five minutes away from a place that does really good cooking, but, I, you know, it's called my grandmother's house. So. <laughs> <laughs> she and like we, we, there's a lot of meat coming out of that place, let me tell yeah, you. Exactly, exactly. So uh, Monica, Dr. Monica is trying to, you know, look into Peter's research and he starts seeing Peter's additions to the research and she decides that she's going to test out this research. And, well, <laughs> she creates a supervillain. As you do. As you do, often in the Marvel Universe. Peter gets a call shortly before her uh, her Spider-Man 2 impression. Oh, yeah. I never even noticed that, but you're right. <laughs> it is like, it's just like the Doc Ock scene from Spider-Man 2. Exactly. Shop class? Decides to act as Spider-Man. Uh, MJ argues that that they left this behind, but Peter's overwhelming sense of responsibility causes him to act. The issue ends with him leaping into action. Da, da, da. No web shooters, though. 
Nope. For some he he missed it. He I think he burned them in the Parker years yeah. one shot or something. Yeah, I think he did too. Speaking, yeah, we we've kind of alluded to that one, that Parker years one shot, but we I don't know if we've mm. ever actually covered it. One of these days we'll actually talk about it. Maybe maybe next recording. Uh, issue okay. Uh, issue two begins with damage control, and I know actually uh, other minor errors. Note: Alex pointed this out. I fifteen years ago when we were still when we were recording. Um, Around the time Parker Years came out, uh, we were saying, oh, we'll cover that with Final Adventure. Yeah, we're not doing that today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> issue 2 begins with the damage control being done uh, by the lab after the after three people have gone missing due to their creation. Peter and MJ are, uh, fight once again over Peter going out of Spidey. Peter decides to put a guilt trip on MJ and leaves. The phone rings. Ellis won't let up and continues to ask questions. He's very suspicious of Peter and MJ and their connection to Spider-Man and this girl spider Peter's investigating the villain and doesn't have his web shooters, as I just as I just mentioned. He does, however, some have some find some cable wire and uses that to fight Tendril. That's his name, Tendril. His real name is River Varies, which is a it's a strange name in real life, but I guess in comic books you need a distinctive sounding normal name as well. So River, River Varies. Yeah, River Varies. <laughs> okay. Uh, Peter tries to attack and ends up in the river. He returns home, still dripping to MJ. MJ threatens to leave Peter. She's had enough. Now I'm going to chalk this up, this scene up to uh, pregnant hormones. I, I I have a note on this, so I, we can touch on that later on if you'd like, or yeah. I could do it now if you'd like. I, I, we'll, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do it with the full thoughts. Peter goes. Okay. Uh, Peter goes into work the next day and finds out why him and Tendril are so similar. They both were exposed to the same radiation. Peter sees the new Spider Ben, wondering if it's the Scarlet Spider. Yurt comes in with the USA Today featuring Peter's fight with the previous night. Ben, the kid wants wants to go to Portland, and MJ looks to be leaving. Even leaving a Dear John letter behind. Peter's excited because he may know how to better understand how his body has changed and how he can help his fetus. His unborn child. Yes. But it's the end of the issue, and so... Yeah, issue three, we go. Very abrupt ending, by the way. Uh, uh, I thought the last page was good, where with um with Mary Jane friend uh, with the dear John there, but yeah, it's good. yeah, I su- I suppose it is somewhat abrupt. You're right. Uh, Peter is out swinging. He gets to uh, gets home to find it empty. Peter and Peter's late for his uh his meeting. It's Classer Parker Luck. Anyway, they drive out to the place where this original experiment of the skin disorder lives. Uh, the security guards are real ass, and uh, Peter convinces them not to hurt the guy, but Spidey will pay him a visit later on. Because nobody's going to put the two and two together, Peter. Nope. Uh, meanwhile, Mary- Betty Brand is being interviewed. <laughs> the worst person to be interviewed about Peter Parker is being interviewed by Ken Ellis. <laughs> In fairness, she's the worst person to be interviewed about, like, anyone. Because, like, a few years after this story, she's going to say, oh, Ned Leeds, our marriage broke down because of the Hobgoblin. I had nothing to do with it at all, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a, what a retcon. And then and then you, uh, re- hey, Betty, remember that boyfriend you had, Ben Riley? You know, you- we'll get to that. Uh, you, you guys will get to that yeah. at some point. I look forward to it. Oh. <laughs> uh. Uh, Josh will definitely be on that episode. I, if I have to drag him kicking her. If, he, if he's on no other episode, it has to be that one. Yes. Ken is beginning to suspect that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, but he can't prove it yet. MJ is out to New York to do a modeling shoot, but her heart isn't in it. Peter's not 
is not home and is too stupid to read the damn letter, and MJ keeps missing him because he's busy. Typical Parker luck. This is how you do the Parker luck, by the way. Yep. Uh, nevertheless, Ken wants to stay, uh, wants to go to Portland, but Robbie keeps blocking him. MJ shows up and he's sh- and, and he's shocked to see her, but she brushes him off and talks to Robbie. Remember that guy that Peter talked to? He's a mixture of uh, early days Groot, the Thing, and Rice Krispies. <laughs> and he's fighting a bear. And he's fighting a bear. Like, like when did when did Vladimir Putin start showing up on this on this on this show? I know he's the unofficial mascot of Spectacular Radio, but uh, anyway, uh, he's fighting a bear. You know, like Vlad. <laughs> <laughs> Peter tries to reason with him while Tendril tries to uh, tries to attack uh, the uh, city, not Peter. MJ goes to Aunt May's house and Ben shows up. They discuss his hair. Uh, they discuss his hair. Finally, we finally get you know some interaction about Ben Riley's hair. But they uh, specifically mentioned Zach from Saved by the Bell as well. Yeah. Yes. Did you notice that? <laughs> I, I, I did. Everybody was laughing at me. Uh, he kind of looks like Zach by Saved by the Bell. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. This miniseries, people. This miniseries. Uh, not before, uh, but not before Ken Ellis shows up with a headline: "Spider-Man Identity Revealed" with a mock-up of Peter as Spider-Man. Peter has. He's, pa- only, he's only ten years early as well, because 2006, the exact same thing happens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think they may have used that actual mock-up. They probably, they probably was like, "Hey, this is something by Ken Ellis." Uh, uh, Peter has Paul, the guy who has Rice Krispies disorder. To go back, convinces him to go back to the lab. But Peter's got the disease. He could have a way to lose his powers once and for all. To be concluded. Our issue picks up with MJ mad as hell. Ben gets the mock-up wadded up and thrown in his face. Ben then falls with the ceiling and he has a devilish grin. Peter then attacks Tendril, uh, uh, tracks Tendril down to save his latest victim. MJ shows up at the bugle at 2 o'clock in the morning to, to visit Robbie. He says he hates killing a story. It's the second worst thing he could think of. Meanwhile, Peter then confronts Tendril using a tracker reminiscent of, the, of his spider tracer tracker in the, in the 90s show. Dry Rot shows up, a, a.k.a. the person who got a cure slash Rice Krispies man slash... Vladimir Putin. Yeah, Vladimir Putin. Bear fighter. Early days group. Peter uses a mo- modified version of the device that gives him powers. It's successful. They... We then cut to the Daily Bugle offices where Ben just trolls Jonah. Jonah tells him to kill Ellis' story where it might not be the real Spider-Man. Robbie goes to Ken to tell them the good news and offers others who could run it. None of them bite if Robbie killed it. Robbie then tells tells MJ to drink decaf and that the worst thing they could do is to, to turn the, uh, his back on the people he loves them when they need him the most. Peter's trying to save the day, but Tendril starts so overloading the system, the big globe... That we've uh, the big iconic globe of radiation that we've seen is knocked off course, but Peter has to, has to do something. He has to go save the day, and in the process, he loses his spider powers. MJ returns home, and we finally see the whole <laughs> note. Peter Parker then tells MJ that he's lost his powers. Then they live happily ever after. For now. For now. Before a skeleton shows up on a stroke stack and causes him to return to New York. But, uh... Thanks, Kurt Busiek. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Uh, alright. I'm gonna do some, some Glenn Greenberg comments, and then... So this is gonna be a little bit more lengthy. And then we're gonna go to you, Alex, for your thoughts on this miniseries. Sounds gotcha, good? gotcha. Alright, so... I remember there being a big discussion between Tom Brevoort, Glenn, and Bobby Lenski on whether or not they could use Ben Riley in the final adventure. Bob's point 
was that the story was supposed to be taking place in Portland, Oregon, away from New York, with the cl- and the classic supporting cast in Ben Riley. Peter and MJ were supposed to be surrounded by new people, a new situation. Why then would we be bringing all the New York stuff into this series? Also, the very first issues of Ben and Spider-Man were coming out at the same time as Final Adventure, and there was some concern about spreading the character too thin. <laughs> he notes that he was also guest starring in the last issue of Web of Scroll and Spider. Tom and Glenn argued that Ben's role in Final Adventure was minimal at best, and essentially an extended cameo appearance, and that the story that Fabian had ultimately developed really did dictate that Ben play a role. Bob finally relented, and I think and Glenn thinks and. Uh, Glenn thinks that Fabian did a really nice job on the scenes with Mary Jane and Ben and brought a new dimension to their relationship. The scene I between, agree. I, I agree with that as well. Uh, the scene between Ben Riley and Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson was a hoot, a throwback to the good old days of Spider-Man, and Glenn was gla- glad that Fabian had the opportunity to work that in. Uh, and then the final Glenn Greenberg comments from Life of Riley concerning this. Okay, settle your. This is literally what he says. Okay, settle yourselves in now because this is going to be a long stretch from Glenn. To say Final Adventure was not without a share of problems would be one hell of an understatement. First of all, Derek was met with some unexpected deadline pressures and had some other freelance commitments that needed to be dealt with. This meant that he had to rush through things the latter portion of the project, but was not able to do the beautifully detailed and intricate artwork he produces when he's doing regular full pencils. They also had to bring in additional inkers to help out, and that cost uh, the team any hope of an internally consistent art style. He looks at Fabian's work on uh, Transmetropolitan and the upcoming, not-so-upcoming Nick Fury limited series, and they regret that they couldn't uh, give him the time of that he really needed to go to town on the pages of the final adventure. But the problems on the story... Uh, on the story end of this project are a tad more involved, to put it mildly. Remember, Glenn had said earlier, and I said it. Uh, I said what Glenn said earlier, that the miniseries was supposed to end with the birth of Peter Parker and Mary Jane's baby. And if you've read my, or you've listened to, not Andrew's synopsis, Andrew Goltes' synopsis, but my synopsis that I just gave, you know that the series didn't end that way, obviously. Instead, Peter Parker lost his powers, and Mary Jane was still pregnant. So what happened? The bottom line was that an important decision was made by Bob Yulensky after work had began on Final Adventure, and that discussion was that Peter Parker was going to definitely be restored as the one true original Spider-Man. Up until then, the plan was to stay the course and keep Ben as the original and as Spider-Man. But now, eventually, with Peter coming back as Spider-Man, there could be no baby. The The feeling was that Peter, highly responsible and conscientious individual, would not and could not continue to be Spider-Man, constantly put his life in danger if he had a baby at home. How could he take a chance on letting a child grow up without its daddy? The other rationale was the main reason why Penn Riley was brought in to replace Peter in the first place was that so they could have a youthful, carefree Spider-Man. Again, single Spider-Man, I might add. That was a major... Are you you getting a sense of deja vu at all? No, not at all. No. Uh, This was a major goal of the Spider-Man group. How then could we turn around and make Spider-Man a father? That development would distance Spider-Man even further from the target audience. Mary Jane's pregnancy had to be stopped somehow. Bobby Linsky suggested that the final adventure end with Mary Jane suffering a miscarriage. Oh my god. Uh, Glenn remembers that he was very uncomfortable with the idea and that he was willing to at least consider it as a possibility. Tom Brevoort, however, flatly refused. Uh, uh, Glenn believes his exact words were, There is no way in hell I'm going to go down in history as the man who killed Spider-Man's baby. 
I don't think the suggestion even made it to Fabian, so vehement revert was about not going in that direction. Tommy suggested that we, uh, we they cancel the whole project, even though they were well underway. No baby, no final adventures, believe, uh, Glenn believes is what he said, pointing out the whole reason we were doing this limited series in the first place was to finally have Mary Jane give birth. Glenn eventually came, er, came around to Tom's way of thinking, and on a July 8, 1995 memo for the, all the Spider-Man editors and writers, he suggested that if Mary Jane suffered a miscarriage, it should happen in the core books, and that they should pull the plug on the Spider-Man Final Adventure limited series. Belinsky quickly pulled back from the idea of having Final Adventure end with a miscarriage. He then suggested the story end with Mary Jane still pregnant. Her condition would indeed be dealt with in the main books. That's not ominous at all. Mm-hmm. And Peter's simply packing up his Spider-Man costume and sending it back to Ben Riley in New York. Tom and... Glenn rejected this because th- this is not at all satisfying, I think, especially not for a four-issue limited series. Something There had to be something significant that happened at the end, something meaningful and important enough to warrant the, char- the project's existence. Nevertheless, Bob kept pushing with this idea as the best solution. Tom discussed the situation with Fabian, who went off to think things through and try to come up with an alternative solution. Soon after, he retur- returned with the idea of Peter Parker losing his powers as a result of his heroic actions in the story's climax. Fabian even stuck in a backdoor, quote-unquote, story element that could easily restore Peter Parker's powers when it became necessary. Belinsky rejected Fabian's new ending since Peter was eventually going to be needed with his powers intact in the core books. By the way, the fact that we were doing a limited series about Peter's, quote-unquote, final adventure only to have him back in action shortly thereafter was not lost on Tom and Glenn. They didn't like it, and there was little they could do about it. In retrospect, they probably should have canceled the whole project before it was solicited, and for all the impact the final adventure ultimately had in the Spider-Man universe, it really wasn't worth the aggravation. At this point, Fabian had to make a stand. He'd already had his original ending, the birth of Peter and Mary Jane's child, ripped away from him. He was having a crappy new ending forced upon him, and the solution he came up with, which gave the limited series at least some semblance of significance, but still took into account the needs of the core books, was flat re- flatly rejected. Fabian understood Bob's position, but he finally told Bob, with no rancor and acrimony, that unless he was able to do the miniseries the way he saw fit, he could not stay on as the writer. A different writer would be after would have to be brought in for the first for the last issue. Revort and Glenn were present for the conversation, and Glenn seems to remember glancing at one another, grimacing both of us seeing the entire project become an unmitigated disaster. There is no doubt in Glenn's mind that Fabian absolutely meant what he said. He didn't need the work that badly, and he be, that he would be forced into writing something he didn't believe in. Fabian eventually wanted to finish the miniseries, but the ending had to work for him. And Glenn completely agreed with him on this, and Tom he believes that Tom did too. Not that it would make their lives any easier if they had to bring in a new writer for the last issue. In the end, Bob relented and Fabian have, uh, let Fabian have his ending, and it was the right thing to do. It was a good way to end the series. Fabian was well aware that his ending would be probably undone within a few short months, but he was fine with that. He just wanted to create Final Adventure as a, to be a complete and satisfying reading experience. Whatever came of, after that w- was not of his concern. Of course, Spider-Man writers were not pleased when they found out that Peter lost his powers. Some were vo- more vocal about their displeasure than others. Uh, they seemed to feel that a sideline project like this, something outside the core books and written by a quote-unquote outside writer, should not have been able to dictate the status of, of a main character, nor should have been allowed to interfere with their long-range story plans. Grand scheme of things, though, 
All they would really have to do is use the back door that Fabian worked in to restore Peter's powers. No big deal. But there were egos involved, and the core writers presumably felt that their toe has been stepped on. And if Glenn were in their shoes, he might have felt the same way. At any rate, Bob Ulensky probably got an earful from the core Spider-Man writers, at least some of them, over his approval of Fabian's ending. Glenn says this because Bob, Bob later went on to say, make it very clear that the core books must always dictate the direction and contents of all sideline projects, as Bob repeatedly would tell Tom and Glenn do, to do otherwise would be able to allow the tail to wag the dog. And Tom and Glenn understood and accepted this philosophy. Unfortunately, as he would discuss later, the core books would descend into further and further creative chaos. As a result, would drag most of the other Grevort Greenberg projects down with them. That is all of Life of Riley for this episode. <laughs> My God. Yeah. There's a lot to digest there, isn't there, Alex? Jesus Christ. I've read I've read this before, but like just hearing it again, it, it's testament to how in a lot of ways the life of Riley behind the scenes stuff is almost a more dramatic story than the actual clone saga itself. Yeah, this is one of those episodes, and this is why I also wanted to have somebody with me to talk about it, because the story behind the story is almost more interesting than the story itself. I think... <laughs> I will say this. I think the story itself wound uh, wound up being a lot better than it should have been given the chaos behind the scenes. And also, to be honest, I think it wound up a lot better than uh, Greenberg is giving credit for in the in Life of Riley. And I, I I think that I think the same. You haven't got there yet, but I think the same thing about Revelations. Like he's more critical of Revelations than it actually is. I think I think it's a lot better than he himself thinks it is. <laughs> It's the same thing with this yeah. story. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think it's it's trying not to portray, not to toot his own horn. Sometimes, I, I I think it's I think it's mostly just that you're coming at it from a different perspective. You're like you're you're sort of on the inside looking out, mm-hmm. whereas us as fans, okay, we we don't necessarily know about the work, the raw work that goes into making these, so we can be a little bit overcritical in that regard. But at the right. same time, I think we are in a but because we've got that distance we can be a little bit more objective about the final product and its quality or lack thereof yeah i i think that when you when you really sit down and, and dissect um even we were talking a little bit about this in the uh in, in the redemption episode which is the last episode we uh, that's been released uh that you know there in that regard it, it sounded kind of so, sort of self-congratulatory but, um, and I think Gerard pointed that out, but in this case, it's like kind of the opposite. Mm. It, you know, I, I think that it's one of those things when you, uh, when you're the, one of the people behind the scenes, when you see the final finished product, yeah, you, um, I think you kind of look at it from the perspective of all the BS that went into producing the final product. Whereas we as fans, we just see the final product. Yeah, and I mean, I think sometimes when you know the behind-the-scenes stuff, it does change how you as a fan feels. Because I'm not somebody who necessarily believes in, like, dismissing any behind-the-scenes strife that's going on when you're evaluating the quality of something. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I... Okay, like, I'm a massive Doctor Who fan, and just very briefly, if you look at the old Doctor Who, it it, it doesn't look very good and in various ways, but me knowing, like the context of what they had to go through to make it makes me sort of grade them on the curve and appreciate it more. And I sort of have the same attitude with a lot of the clone saga stuff. Like when you understand what was going on behind the scenes, 
I think you do have to grade it on the curve of what they managed to produce under those conditions and cut them some slack because, it, you know, there was complete chaos behind the scenes. And Marvel as a whole, back during, you know, this time yeah, period, yeah. and especially during Marvel. So I don't think it's fair to necessarily rake them over the coals to certain extents. Oh, I'm, not it, saying, it, I'm not saying giving them a pass for everything, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the amount of editorial strife, and we've talked yeah. about this numerous times, especially when we're talking about the five editors-in-chiefs, and and yeah. uh, we will talk about this really a lot, I think, in the Onslaught episode, because which is the fo- episode following this one. Um, it, it to me onslaught, and you just you said you just read the onslaught stuff. I skim read it. I had to. I was looking for pictures from it, and it was yeah. I had to get a, a massive reading list and figure out where to start, where to stop, and it was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Because you had all well, I mean, because it. Uh, you could, all I'll say about this, just to give a preview, onslaught definitely was an X Men event. Yes. And that encapsulated the entire Marvel universe and. Uh, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't for the marvel universe's benefit it was an x-men event which screwed over the wider marvel universe especially the like the avengers and which is ironic because you know nowadays you've got avengers events that screw over the uh, x-men yes absolutely marvel we're not buying your whole in in humans as uh mutant replacements no uh, anyway i i will say this get let's I'll, I'll give my thoughts on the actual story Actually, I'm going to let you give your thoughts because I've talked enough. On okay. Um, well, I've got like I got a few thoughts, but like just to give you my thoughts of the story overall, mm-hmm. I really love the story. Um, I actually think it's a, it's a hidden gem in Spider-Man's history because not a lot of people know about this. Not a lot of people talk about this story at all. You kind of understand because it's like lost amidst everything that was going on in the Clone Saga. But I actually think it is one of the stronger Clone Saga stories. Maybe it's even the best story published since Amazing 400, just in terms of like how it handles the character and the emotions and stuff. But there are two big conceptual problems with the project what one of those is that it tries to go back to spider-man's origin in amazing fantasy 15 by having work for the same company which sponsored the science experiment and is doing that because it's trying to close the circle right. on spider-man's story because this is his quote-unquote final adventure but the problem with that is you know when this was story was originally written this isn't spider-man this is spider-man's clone his story begins in the 1970s clone saga so thematically this spider-man this version of spider-man even though he he has those memories he hasn't actually got a connection to this whereas us reading this in hindsight we don't necessarily feel that way because we know it's the real spider-man in this story but i'm just right. saying when this story was written it was it was kind of thematically i don't want to say disingenuous but it didn't quite make sense because it's like this it's sort of pretending this is the real spider-man when Without it, it was yeah when it wasn't yeah, the real spider-man it's not it's not the right spider-man for this story but like you know if it was if it was peter parker was the real spider-man and it'd been understood that way in context then they, that problem wouldn't exist but unfortunately that isn't the case yeah this is one of the one of the beauties of hindsight when you read this yeah now. it does make sense but at the time that it was published yeah you're absolutely right well, I mean, uh, just a quick side note, like, that's actually one of the things I find the most interesting about the Clone Saga, just, like, analyzing it as a piece of, like, 
fiction or a piece of literature that depending upon what context you choose to look at it from, your interpretations of it change immensely. Because if you can look at it from hindsight, it's very different to looking at it like from the perspective of what was happening if you were a reader at the time or, you know, from the behind the scenes perspective. Like even earlier on in the clone saga, it's like you understand Peter is the real one and Ben is the clone, but the writers are thinking Ben is the real one and Peter's the clone. But then from hindsight, we know Peter is the real one and Ben is the clone, but it's all this big conspiracy to make to make the characters think differently by Norman Osborn. Yeah. So it's, it, it, you know, things that are ironic intentionally suddenly don't become ironic or become ironic in a different way. Uh, and plot points which aren't even intended to be funny or ironic in any way, shape or form suddenly become just because we know what's going to happen down the line. Like, in, you know, just, just the, like you said, like the idea of uh, the Mary Jane having a miscarriage at the end of this story, that was like a genuine intention. Like we know, unfortunately, what happens at the end of the clone saga. So right. it it changes how we look at things. Well, and uh, I, think, I think that the ending was left ambiguous enough to where... Yeah. And it's it's a plot thread that they don't want to ever touch, and they made radioactive for the exact reasons that Tom Brevoort objected to it. So. I mean, I, I, st- I still hold hope. I know this. Maybe this is naive. I still hold hope that someday, somehow, that thing with the the ba- the missing baby will be resolved satisfactorily. You know, maybe when. The people in charge now leave, and the people from our generation roll in. But yeah, you know, uh, you know, at this point, I'm kind of, I'm kind of of two minds of it. Would I like to see a, a, a May Parker, a young May Parker, show up in Spider-Man? Yeah. Would I like to see just some, some grief from Peter on the same level? as uncle ben and gwen stacy yeah i would be fine with that because honestly that that's the one thing that always just it's a stick in my craw Mm. you you lost your brother you lost um your daughter your daughter and as as on the same night yeah on on the same same night yeah on the same night and and as someone who has a who is the father of a daughter Mm. i that would be devastated that should be this is that, that's the thing that I always bring up. It's like, maybe there is an in-universe explanation as to why he doesn't necessarily dwell on Ben and May's deaths as much as he does Gwen and Uncle Ben. I haven't figured out what that explanation might be just yet, but maybe there is one. But it, to me, it's always felt really disingenuous that they don't do that, even like before they retconned it. Even if you don't want to bring back Ben or the baby, that would be such a great fertile ground for drama. Realistically, every Halloween, Peter and Mary Jane are going to be feeling this immense grief because that's the night that would have been their baby's birthday. And you've got all these kids running around in costumes and stuff. And you've got like pumpkins as, as, as Halloween decorations. That's a visual reminder of the man who ripped their hearts out, basically. Yeah. It, it's fertile ground for drama, even if you don't want to commit to it. And I mean, that, that you know, the, the whole thing with like, he killed, you know, um, revelations at the end that's kind of why i've always found it bullshit whenever someone says anyone except norman osborne is the biggest spider-man bad guy because who else has done something as bad as that it's like you know kill, you know, kill, killed his brother killed you know killed his child not even doc Ock and superior did anything as bad as that well he did kill peter yeah but well, like you know uh, he, he, US, did US, US, thing, he did the one thing that norman couldn't do well, I hold will on. Say, I will say that. 
Well, in, in in Norman's defense, he could have killed Peter whenever he wanted because, like, he knows who he is. He knows where he lives. He can disable the spider sense. He just doesn't want to kill him because he likes torturing him, basically. I agree with that. The, the, I mean, the thing to me is that, I mean, you, you're a father and, like, you know, maybe you can set me straight because I'm not a father. But, like, to me, by and large, most parents are going to be like, if, if the choice is I die or my child has to suffer... I'd rather you did something bad to me rather than my kid. Yes. Which is which is kind of why I've always felt which is why I've never agreed with the notion of Doc Ock being better because he quote unquote killed Peter Parker, you know, as opposed to Norman who did who who who's killed who killed May and Ben and Gwen and faked Aunt May's death like twice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean the amount of stuff that Norman has done. Yeah. Especially from this point on. Yeah, is is pretty deplorable. I mean, it was bad enough that he killed his girlfriend, and and Peter Peter had to live with, and that's the thing as well. It's like Peter has to live with that pain and to an extent that guilt uh, over those people's deaths, like every day, and he has to feel that loss. And that's like that's kind of worse than just like you know you yourself dying. At, yeah. at least to me, it is. I, I yeah, I, I couldn't imagine. The only grief I could imagine being close, and I'll get kind of personal here. Yeah. Is uh, I had a disabled sister who, uh, her and I were very, very, very close, and losing <laughs> her was was a significant uh, loss in my life. Yeah. Um, and seeing how it affected my parents and things like that, that that's not something that you get over. No, you you carry such yeah, pain you carry, with you. you carry, yeah, you carry it with you, and and, and now you manage it. I can I can believe Peter Parker managing that guilt and compartmentalizing it, but the fact that we never got to see that uh, on the page is all very disingenuous. Well, you you kind of did, like you yeah. did you kind because of, they were they acknowledged that they were going to therapy. There were acknowledgments of him doing that. It's just those acknowledgments ended. Like, as soon as John Burton showed up, and then no <laughs> one talked about it, basically. No one talked about the baby. No one talked about Ben Riley. Yeah. And uh, I, found, I find that really disingenuous. It's, it's, like, it's, the reason, it's the reason why everyone who praises Dan Slott's story, you know, when he has that dream and he sees everyone who's ever died in his life, you know, Ben Riley is just a cameo in that, which is just really wrong to me because... It, ben wasn't just this figure who was in his life for a little while. You know, he was someone who was very close to Peter. He was someone who understood Peter better than anyone who's ever lived could, because he he literally remembers being Peter. Uh, you know, and and the lack of acknowledgement until well, you know, until these past few months actually wasn't was never really sat right with me. But I think maybe we're going a bit off on a tangent because yeah, we're yeah, supposed to be to our final adventure yeah, yeah. sorry so, so, about so, that no no it's fine uh it, it's a good discussion to have and we'll obviously probably i'll have this discussion a uh, similar discussion whenever we get to revelations but uh because of the miscarriage being brought up i you, you kind of had to acknowledge yeah. that oh yeah um, um there was uh, sorry there was um there was there was one other like general thought i had in this um it was that there's there's a little bit of a another conceptual problem with the series in that it, it kind of fails because it succeeds because i look at this story and i think it's actually fairly well written it highlights aspects of spider-man's character which you know are endearing and have been endearing to fans for a long time and it it, it showcases you 
some interesting new directions the character could go in, you know, what with him being a, an expectant father and all of that. But all of that just, you know, it reminds you why you like this character, why this is a good character. And so this idea that this story is sending him away and he is and is shunting him out of the series, again, just underscores people's anger and, and are upset over, you know, the, the transition that he's being thrown away in, in favor of Ben Riley. Because because I don't I, I think even people who love Ben Riley a lot didn't really want to have him at the expense of Peter. They kind of wanted both of them to be around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was one of those that wanted to see more adventures of Ben and, and Peter. You know that, like in the Clone Saga miniseries, that the, the own yes. you know, when you have Peter and, and Ben in their respective Spider-Man costumes, you know, Peter wasn't going to be to have Peter, you know, on the bench. You know, mm-hmm. if, if something really need, needed to happen, or Kane showed up and and Ben couldn't handle it himself. Yeah, then I'll jump in. But it's only at it's it's like it's like on a uh, being a volunteer firefighter. Yeah, I mean, I t- sorry, yes. All, a volunteer firefighter you don't report you don't uh, respond to every fire but you respond to the big ones yeah but uh, to me as well like in that miniseries that highlights uh, i like that miniseries a lot but i think the original intention like as tom defalco says it for the clone saga was you know peter was gonna at the end of the clone saga peter was gonna be a new dad and he's gonna be spider-man and ben's gonna be the younger single spider-man and you know, people can say like, "Well, it, it's stretching the brand too much to have both of them." But like, because they were defined differently enough, and because they're in different places in their life, you could creatively justify it. Because if you know, it's a very different status quo and a very different set of uh, emotional circumstances to have one Spider-Man who's who's very experienced, very vet, very veteran, and is you know trying to manage having a family compared to Ben Riley, who's, you know, been through a different set of life experiences, more widely traveled, is not as experienced as a, uh, a crime fighter and is, you know, trying to sort of get to where Peter is in life, you know. So there would be a lot of uh, ground, there would a lot of different ground to cover to, to justify both of them coexisting. Um, whereas now, God knows what we're going to get with them both coexisting, but we'll see. I have faith in Peter David. I do. I have I have faith that it will be an entertaining, well written read because it's Peter David, as opposed to like it being a good idea that he's executing competently. We'll see. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in reading about the adventures of the 27th dead clone of Ben Riley, who's nuts. But we'll see. Yeah. Well, I'm sure somebody will be reviewing it on the front page of Spider Dude. I haven't decided who yet. But... Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to push that off on you. I'm just saying, because uh, you do enough on our front page. Thanks. I'm incredibly grateful for. My thoughts to kind of start to wind the web, the episode down. the The fact that this miniseries series exists is is not a bad thing. And I think at the time, miniseries were meant to, and even now, you see miniseries that are, are meant to enhance the main books, and. I felt like that this side story was so uh, the the weakest thing was I mean Tendril was weak. Uh, I did make fun of the look of of uh, Paul. Dry, yeah, dry rot. rot. Yeah, uh, Tendril and Dry Rot are not the, the the greatest villains in the world. Nice. But 
to me, they were so immaterial to the story. It was all about the interpersonal relationships. The relationship with Mary Jane and Robbie. Yes. Something that we oh, my God. Uh, we don't see very often. And I felt like we saw it a little bit more after the Clone Saga. But uh, Robbie's kind of the uh, kind of took the, the role of George Stacy to the rest yes. of the Spider crew. In he's that uncle. He, he's well I, I would say he's kind of sort of the the closest thing there is to a father figure and I, I've always felt that you know because we've had the George Stacys of of Spider-Man we've had the Max Models and the Ezekiel but no Robbie's always just been there I don't understand why they don't use him because he's clearly I, I think, the best character well I I think the problem is, is Robbie is typecasts as the foil for Jonah yeah, but even then, he could still he could still operate as the father I, figure for speed. I, sorry, yes, you were saying? I, I don't disagree with any of that. And mm. In fact, I, I was kind of shocked that we didn't see... Uh, I, I liked the fact that Gloria Grant was uh, Jonah's chief of staff as mayor, but the fact that he didn't uh, you know, appoint Robbie to a position... Um, well... Kind of, he, I, would have mind, I, I wouldn't have minded seeing Robbie in a position... To where, at least as a senior advisor to Jonah, he could still be publisher of, of Frontline Day, uh, whatever the hell it was. Uh, wouldn't that be a conflict of interests? Because he's, you know, he's like controlling the media and he's so ingrained. You know, you, it's a little bit difficult to criticize a, a politician when you're working for that politician at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. If he, I guess, if it was the presidency, then you would drop everything. Um, or, or being a, you know, in in your case, since you're in, you're, you're British, uh, it'd be the equivalent of being a special advisor to the prime minister. Yeah. Um, um, you, you would drop whatever you're doing, and then you would assume that role. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, to me, yeah, I think it was. This is a, this is a miniseries that I think you should read because it, it scores some relationship points with with Robbie and even Jonah. Um. But Robbie was the real star, uh, the real hidden gem star of this miniseries. Yes, absolutely. He, I think he almost stole the show because he's yeah. just he he's. This is one of the best written Robbies I've ever I've ever read. In in regard, at least in regards to okay, he's not Jerry Conway portrayed him a bit more multifacetedly because he had a whole ongoing series. But this Robbie is everything Robbie should be in relation to Peter. He is yes. just the 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 really warm morally upright decent decent person who loves who loves peter he does love peter he genuinely cares about him mm-hmm. and the fact that he's he has this relationship with mary jane it makes a lot of sense because robbie was there in the airport when they had their first kiss in the very first clone saga mm-hmm. and he was the person that mary jane turned to in craven's last hunt so the fact so the fact that she would turn to him there is a sort of a precedent for that. And, and it's also you know, maybe this idea that, you know, Mary Jane for years secretly knew Peter was Spider-Man. And, you know, before uh, One More Day, Robbie secretly knew Peter was Spider-Man. And you kind of get this vibe in this story that they both know that the other is aware of the truth, but they're not going to say it, you know? Right, and, and even even when uh, confronted about it with Jonah and, and Robbie in the mm. friendly neighborhood story, Robbie still protected Peter. Yes, you know, I, I didn't know anything. Anyway, th- that's the thing as well. You know, like Robbie is a really upstanding journalist. He believes in journalistic ethics, but he knows 
the Peter Spider-Man, he doesn't tell anybody. He even lets Peter get away with, well, fraud, basically, when he takes pictures of himself. Yeah. But because yeah. He, he kind of, he, because he cares about Peter, and because well, he it, knows it's he, for the greater good as well. Yeah, and I think that, how could Robbie have not known? Honestly, the, for those that say Robbie doesn't know, Robbie knew. Of course he does. It, 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 there was a subtext to all the conversations with with George Stacy, to uh, all the because uh, I mean with with Robbie and, and George being friends, mm. that relationship one endeared uh, Robbie to the to the Spider Man universe, but uh, even greater I think. But also it, it pretty much confirmed once George revealed that you know he knew that Peter was Spider Man. Yeah. Even even when you read that uh, uh, that annual. The '96 annual where they brought in uh, John Romita Sr. and uh, Falco and friends. What well, didn't Derek Robertson do some work in that as well? In a, he may have he may have done the first part of the story. I think uh, he did the backup because there's a, there's a backup by uh, how do you pronounce his name? Nicieza, Nicieza, uh, uh, Fabian Nizia. Nizia. There's a, there's a backup in that annual by Nizia, and I think Robertson did that as well. I seem to recall. He may have. This was the uh, this was this was the part of the annual that was included in the Clone Saga trades. I haven't mm. actually read the uh, the full annual because I know there's a story that takes place like not long after Craven's last hunt. It's it's actually it's, it's set before Craven's last hunt. It's like it's after the wedding. It's after the honeymoon, but before Craven's last hunt. Ah, okay. I know this because it's like it was one of my very first Spider-Man comics, so I I, I know that one by heart. <laughs> yeah. So I you know it's one of those. I mean, yeah. Uh, how how would you like that to be your first Spider-Man comic? You got Jazzy John Ju- John Senior inked by or Ron Friends inked by John John Senior, which basically makes Ron Friends' pencils John Senior. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he minded. No, no, and uh, and written by Tom DeFalco. I, I I don't think you can find a better introduction to Spider-Man with those three guys. But, that wasn't uh, that was uh, that wasn't my strictly speaking my introduction, but like it, it was it was early enough basically. Yeah, you're still in your formative. Spider-Man yeah. Years. Uh, I really, like I say, I really enjoy this story because the the relationship with Peter and Ben. Mm-hmm. Um, you started to see that even after the, the smokestack stuff, but I think this was kind of the the genesis of it. Um, after the greatest responsibility, and after Ben helps Peter save, you know, um, Baby May with the isotope and everything like that. Mm-hmm. You, I, I think Mary Jane's feelings towards Ben start to mellow. And even during Mark of Cain, when whenever she she remarks to Ben, uh, so Riley, how does it feel to be an uncle? Yeah, I I, I think that her relationship with with Ben is very interesting because it you know it uh, when they first meet at the end of four hundred and then in aftershocks, she's obviously antagonistic towards him, like mm-hmm. because Peter is as well. Then she starts to mellow towards him, but she doesn't really entirely trust him, right. and and you know. She's shown herself to have a little bit of a prejudice because in 400 she mentions, you know, it's a clone, it's not a real person, which says something about how she regards Ben. But then, right. and, and in maximum clonage, um, she's antagonistic towards Ben for a little while. And then right. by the time you get to here, I think they have mellow, they've settled down into this, you've been there for my husband, you clearly care about him just like I do, you know, so we're on the same side. But more than that, in this, I read this and I say, Ben is her brother-in-law basically and and he regards her as a sister-in-law they're friends and there's no refreshingly there's no romance at all 
but it, you yeah. know they clearly care about each other. This is a purely platonic, friendly relationship. They're family. They're family. They're to family. intents and purposes. Yeah. yeah, and it's not. You're right. The fact that they didn't try to bring uh, bring in romantic tension between the two is yeah. Is because they would totally do that today. If the Clone Saga were written yes. today, oh god, there, there would be a, uh, a, a this incessant need to um, ship to ship yeah. people. Basically, I mean that's I mean that especially. I mean, I'm actually surprised they didn't ever toy with that. I mean, I'm glad they didn't, but like, because if you think about it, when this was written, Ben Riley was technically speaking the very Ben Riley was the person who kissed her in the airport when Robbie was watching. That was him doing that. So they had dated technically in their past, but yeah, you yeah. get to this point and that's just not there. Which, again, I'm glad for. Like, uh, it, I, but I think those emotions with Ben. Mm. With in regards to Mary Jane, played out with Janine. Um, I. Uh, it's no coincidence I, he goes after a redhead bomb. Well, yeah, but you could just say yeah, but you could just say all of the Parkers they just like redheads, you know, because yeah. Kane Kane has a redhead girlfriend for a while as well. Is yes. is it's just I it might just be a thing because isn't Parker like an Irish name or something? Could be, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm not entirely. I, I'm not sure if it's if it's English or if it's Irish. Uh. That's a very. I'll have to look that up. I'll I'll have to do some genealogy studying, and, and I'll talk about that next episode. But either but, way, the you know, I think the point is like they've both they're both in a very different place. But at, at the end of the day, it's like the fact that they haven't got a romantic relationship is a, is just as we say it's endearing because you've got the family aspect, and it's also just refreshing because like ninety percent of the time in all media. When you got like two attractive, you got an attractive man and an attractive woman who aren't related to one another in the same room. There's there's some sort of romantic tension going on, mm-hmm. for better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I think the artwork is pretty good throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can tell, I mean, especially in the last part, that it's not as detailed as it would normally would be. So it's just breakdowns. Yeah. Uh, that's a classic example of full pencils versus breakdowns. Uh, if you want to, if you want to see see a textbook example of that, um, but I think even even with the uh, with the lack of detailed pencils in part four, I think part four works out well. I liked mm-hmm. Derek when he drew uh, Scarlet Spider costume. I yep. liked him when he drew the uh, the Ben Riley costume. The, the scene with Jonah, I agree with Glenn Greenberg. It's a hoot. I laughed mm-hmm. first time I read it. It was one of those things where I was like, okay, that is Spider Man. Yeah. We didn't see that enough, I think, when Ben was Spider-Man. But uh, even even Robbie kind of chuckling, saying, uh, "Hey Jonah," he even said that uh, it's going to last longer. It, it normally dissolves in an hour. But, but he's improved. Uh, the, he's improved he, the formula. <laughs> he's improved the strength of the formula. Uh, <laughs> I'll order you new pants. I mean that's. <laughs> Well, that, that's a that's a I think that's a callback to because wasn't there like a Ditko issue where he lost his pants or, or the pants his pants were damaged because Spider-Man webbed him to the chair or something. Probably. I recall. I, I seem to vaguely recall that. If it was, I'm sure if it didn't happen in the Ditko era, it probably happened in the Vermita era. Yeah. Uh, but I like I say to give this a grade, um, I'm gonna give it a B plus. Because uh, I, I I think it's a it's a, a it's not an average story. I think it's above average. I think mm-hmm. it's, good, it's not good enough to warrant an A, but mm-hmm. it's in it's in there with the the Ben Riley era as as one of the better uh, stories. It just uh, just happened to feature Peter Parker as, uh, as opposed to Ben Riley. Uh, I I would uh, I would agree with that grade. Just like to um, 
I, I pretty much agree with what you said in regards to the grading. In regards to the art, I'm not sure what he's done, but like, D- Robertson has this weirdly kind of gritty but not Sinkevich y quality to the work, which just makes, I don't know why, it just works for Spider Man. Maybe because he's supposed to be, you know, fed level. down to earth. Sorry? It's ground level. It's, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, not it's not uh, bombastic space art. Exactly. Like you see, like you see with some right. like I like uh, I've liked Cam and Coley's artwork. It's been one of the only things that I've really liked about this current volume for the most part. But it's one of those things when he has time and he's not inking himself and he's got a strong colorist, it enhances the art. Mm-hmm. Um, with Robinson, it's it's one of those that I could see Derek Robinson because uh, I think he drew he didn't just draw draw Planet of the Symbiotes backup. I think he drew one of the issues of Planet of the Symbiotes too. I think you're right. Yeah, and the... uh, that was actually one of my favorite parts of Planet of the Symbiotes was his artwork. Well, you got to find something to like in that in that hot uh, mess. You know, we I had fun doing that miniseries because it was it, it was one of those it's so bad it's good. I can understand that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I even kind of laughed out loud when I saw them do their basic recreation on Ultimate Spider-Man. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I was like, uh, I kind of, I'm like, wow, they really went there. This is bad. Because... They, of all the stories to like adapt is like Maximum Carnage and Planet of the Symbiotes. Well, that's what we're going to do. You know, God forbid we do something, you know, from the Remeter era or, so, or you know, from Roger Stern's run, no, Planet yeah. of the Symbiotes, quality all the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then, did they finally, I, I stopped watching after they killed off, uh, not, not Kane, Ben Riley. did they, or not seemingly killed them off. Did they ever bring in the actual Kane? Because I heard I, he was like, they basically made him spider side, did, or did you watch it or not? I have I've I I watched the first season consistently because I just wanted to give it a chance, and I was immensely angry by the end of it. So I just kind of dipped in and out to see of scenes and episodes. So I don't really know what's going on, to be honest with you. I hear it's got better, but oh, it's it like it got better. Like but, season okay, you, seasons one and two were pretty much the same. You had Spider Friends and uh, everything we hate about how Peter Parker can't help himself out of situations. He has to rely on his friends. Mm-hmm. That was seasons one and two. The so season three kind of um, when they started when they did Web Warriors mm-hmm. and it started being more about Spider-Man and Spider-Man characters, it got better. You still had inexplicably one of the big bads being Arlem Zola. Ar- uh, Zola, and you're see, like, why? Why is Hydra involved? See, why? Uh, see, see. To me, it's like from what I've observed, it's like it's gotten better. But it's still bad because it's still like fundamentally just doesn't understand Spider-Man, which is which is it's trying to avengerify Spider-Man, which is what the comics have been doing to really bad. And they've got people from the comics working on it. They've got Steve Wacker on that show. They've got Dan Slott working on that show off and on as well. Yeah, and he's doing the new uh, the new series, the Back to Basics series. I've I've seen some some behind the scenes stuff for that because of my job and. yeah, I'm not going to say anything because I can't. But <laughs> uh, you know, there there are some characters who are fan favorites who will be appearing in it. Is all I shall say. Oh. Uh, well, fan favorites depending upon your generation. That's what I'll say. Okay. Uh, but Fair like enough. going back to this, which actually understands Spider-Man, unlike Ultimate Spider-Man, uh-huh. I I I really like the last page because of of issue four 
because it it demonstrates a really great grasping of the whole great power, great responsibility thing, and also the dichotomy between uh, Peter's identity and Spider-Man's identity. Because like in that last page, it's basically saying Peter is Spider-Man with or without his powers. He's a, you know deep down he is this heroic, altruistic person. Spider-Man isn't just you know, and Spider-Man isn't the real guy. And Spider-Man, but Spider-Man also isn't like uh, an act he puts on when he puts the costume on, which is something a lot of writers don't quite understand. They seem to think that actually Spider-Man is this other personality he pretends to be, which isn't no, speaking no, true. No, it's it, look at Spider-Girl. Yeah, exactly. Him becoming him becoming a, a member of the police department mm -hmm. uh, scratches the itch that Spider-Man helping people of helping people. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like they've tried to portray that with this whole Peter Parker as a scientist trying to help people, but uh, it's not. It's not. It's it's at such. It takes such a backseat to all the other BS. Yeah. That you have to like glare through it with a laser to get to that. It's like sitting. It's like in the back of the car. If the car was like a, a a school bus. Yeah. You know, it's sitting there. It's sitting there chilling in the back by itself. You know, Peter Parker wants to help people. But we're going to go through all this fluff and, and muck to get there. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I think the problem, because I was going to mention this as well in regards to this story, is that the problem with a lot of modern, with, with Spider-Man as, you know, in Horizon Labs, or with Parker Industries, and you're portraying him as a scientist in that field, is that it's not down to earth enough. With Spider-Man, you know, there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of essential elements to Spider-Man's character. One of those is that he is, you know, relatively speaking, the everyman that he is the down-to-earth superhero which means you can't you can't take him to ridiculous uh extent such as you know he's worked somewhere where there's a time machine just just because <laughs> or, or you know he he has he has access to all of these gadgets but you know in this story this is the first story to my recollection where you know as a proper job not as like a lab assistant at esu or something just like this is his career yeah. Spider-Man is a scientist. This is the first story to do that, to my recollection. Yes. Might be wrong, yes, but you know this is very, very different to Horizon Labs, to Parker Industries, to Tricorp, even because you get this vibe that yeah, there's there's like a there's there's like comic book science and technology going on in this in this lab, but it's not oh it's not too much. You know there aren't any time machines in this lab. There aren't any got yeah. uh, we you know he can't just go it's to trying. It's trying oh. to bring the uh, Fantastic Four to Spider-Man when you have time machines yes. and every single whiz-bang gadget you could possibly think of. Peter Parker tinkering and putting something together. Yeah. Um, even the, the little tracker he made, you know, I, I referenced the 90s show, but yeah. even the little tracker that he uses in this issue. That's that's okay. That's within character. But having him create a, a bulletproof suit that doesn't look anything like Spider-Man and, uh, and to use that to where he, you know, finds mm. this psychopath massacre well uh, it's 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 one of those things where like he could do it, it's like your character can do this thing but just because it's within their abilities doesn't mean you should necessarily go there like i, I remember this this really bad batman story called batman war games or something where the the idea was batman insta you watch, know, Bat, watch, Bat, watch your tongue donovan may be listening no he hates great. that he doesn't like that story i know for oh, okay. he doesn't like right. this. but like the, the the in the story the idea is that batman instigates batman has this plan to instigate a gang war but at the end of that gang war he will control crime in gotham city that's like something he sat down and he planned out and 
maybe you could say Batman could do that, but you still shouldn't have him do that. It's the same reason. You, it's like Superman could cure world hunger, but that doesn't mean you should actually commit to him doing that in the story. It's the same thing with Spider-Man. It's like, yeah, if he has the resources, he can invent a bulletproof suit. Probably he can invent, you know, technology to solve all of his problems as a crime fighter. But because the characters, you know, the philosophy behind the character was for him to be the everyman. You shouldn't take him to that extent. You should know better as the writer than to not go to in that direction for him. And, and this, this, you know, this science job here, he, he has uh, resources at his disposal, but you know, you get the idea that it's a little bit more grounded, that this is like a nine to five job. He isn't necessarily going to be you know, getting really rich off this. And he doesn't have, every single technology ever possible at his disposal just to solve the plot for him you know unless the writer decides to in which case that's bad writing yeah yeah i mean this is this this keeps peter parker grounded yeah and not to me he should not be at the forefront of scientific technology in the marvel universe that doesn't make any sense even though he Um, could be because he's smart but it's it's again i i don't mind peter helping Mm. read and uh you know helping Reed and, and, and Tony and, and Hank solve a problem, a problem sure. here and there, but using a scientific acumen. But not, I, I just, I don't think him being, um, and I, I've even see, seen Slot reference this, that, that he's in a job he's not ready for. Well, you really haven't earned that there, Dan. No, he didn't. Because he could, well, uh, he, he, he's in that position because of Dr. Octopus. He, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, he's in a job he's not ready for because of Doc Ock. But like, there are, even if you did that storyline, you know, there are, ba- there are much better ways. If, if Nietzsche from the 90s at the very least, because I don't know what he's like as a writer now, was writing the status quo that Dan Slott has invented for Spider-Man, he would handle it very differently. He would focus upon the character, the emotions, which is what you should do with Spider-Man, because Spider-Man is, 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 a, is an inherently introspective series, and inherently it's very scary, because it's a soap opera. It's all about emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's what Nisiesa would do with such a status quo, because, you know, you, like I said, like he, he's the guy who did Spider-Man as a scientist before Dan Slott, before Tricorp, and he's the guy who, in just four issues, did it much, much, much better. You know, right. and, and especially when you consider... You know, he he's he's. I think it's because he's balancing it out with the other human elements. Like you know, his 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 marriage to Mary Jane. Which I was going to ask you, like, what you felt about its portrayal in this story, because uh, I've have a few mixed feelings with it. But like, mm. what what did you? Okay. Th- All right. So somebody somebody that has experienced both marriage and a divorce. Mm-hmm. There is tension in every marriage. Okay. Mm-hmm. No marriage starts and ends without some sort of conflict. Conflict can either do two things. It can bring you closer together or it can drive you further and further apart. And there are certain things that are unforgivable. Sure. In that regard, I feel like that the conflict here was natural because Peter had said, I'm I'm leaving this behind. We're going to go to Portland. And Mary Jane's reaction, look, I could also kind of write off a little bit of the anger as some pregnancy hormones because let me tell you something. If you sneeze wrong with a pregnant woman sometime, they will bite your head off and you just (laughs) 
you have to learn to the phrase yes dear whatever you say dear has to come out of your mouth hopefully it doesn't come uh, across as disingenuous or you haven't used that as, as a disingenuous joke mm-hmm. because if you use that in real life after doing it as a joke you will uh, be vaporized uh but uh, so I feel like that the the marriage in this issue was pretty realistic. I, I, I mostly agree with you. I actually think that I guess like I I'm, I have mixed feelings because like I don't like seeing Mary Jane be like you know angry, frustrated. How dare you be Spider Man? Normally in stories, I don't like it when that happens. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit here and say you know it's out of character inherently. I think I think like her the anger she displays is definitely you know. It's tied to her pregnancy, but also like if you look at everything that has happened to her character in the Clone Saga and even before the Clone Saga, you know, between the robot, between like the robot parents, Maximum Carnage, um, you know, the whole "I am the Spider" nonsense, and then you know, you know, she almost died last time we saw her. Technically, I think there's grounds to say that she's like really wound tight and really stressed, and like she just needs a break from Peter being Spider-Man more than anything. So like I cuz I I don't I don't really deep down believe the whole thing about her, you know, she threatens to leave him. I don't believe she really meant that or that she actually would have gone through with that. Cuz like you said like, you know, conflict bring, you know, can drive you apart or bring you closer together. But like if you if you look at the history of those two characters, at least going back to the death of Gwen Stacy, you know, Conflict has always, almost always brought them closer together. And they've been through, like, really ridiculous, you know, emotionally traumatic events in their lives together. And, you know, later on, we're going to see them go through a miscarriage and they're going to stay together after that as well. So I, I don't really buy her. I, I don't really buy that she would. I, I buy maybe that if she was stressed enough and angry enough, she would maybe subtly threaten to leave him. But not. But I don't buy that she'd ever actually do it. If if you see yeah, what I mean, yeah, I agree with that. And I, I, I mean, she did leave him the letter, and and Peter only. You know, yeah, well, that was that, that, that was a joke. <laughs> that was a, yeah. that was hilarious. I mean, it's like you said that that's that's the Parker luck done right. Yeah, I mean, even like they reminded me of the uh, MJ issues where uh, uh, meet and, the well the fi- the 50th inch issue where he he flew to L.A., she flew to New York, and then yeah. they kind of met in the middle. That was the typical Parker luck. That's the Parker Luck is it doesn't it's, beat you over the head. Yeah, the the Parker Luck at the end of the day is supposed to be, but basically Spider Man is someone who I'm not going to say he's an inherently negative person, but he's someone who is very hard in himself, and he kind of feels like the world is against him sometimes. You could say that that's partially because when he was originally being written, he was a teenager. And Stanley in the '60s had discovered, oh, it's really interesting when I make characters, f- you know, feel a lot of angst. So consequently, Stanley, being Stanley, he slavered angst all over it, you know, and and really rode, the, you know, milked it for all it's worth. Um, but that that wasn't really what was happening. Even in the Ditko issues, you can see that sometimes things go good for Spider-Man, sometimes they go bad, sometimes they're a bit of both, and. That's because Spider-Man is supposed to be a reflection of real life, you know, to an extent all the Marvel characters are supposed to be. And and in real life, there's there's always a mixture of good and bad. And that's what the Parker luck is. It's like, you know, it's just the normal bad luck anyone has in their life. But it's exacerbated because... You know, he's a superhero. It's like if you're if you're Spider Man and you're spending most of your time doing that, there's gonna be a knock on effect. But if you're if you're Spider Man out of choice, 
then it isn't really bad luck because you know you could choose to make your life easier whenever you want but he doesn't because you know he, he feels he has to be a hero yes exactly it, there's an obligation there that, yeah. that he's gonna he's gonna be a hero but i don't hate the interaction with peter and mary jane but i can see where people have a problem with it but uh, this i i felt like it was it was attempting to be realistic with with in regards to the situation i you know, don't don't tell somebody you're going to do something and then go and do the exact opposite of what you tell you that you're not going to do. Um, Even I think when you put it in context, you understand why she feels the way she feels, but I don't think realistically she's being reasonable because it's like there is literally a supervillain in Portland. There is no other superhero around. Who else is going to do? Who else is going to save the day? Someone has to. So I don't. I but I hesitate to be too hard enough because like that's one of my things. I really hate it when people don't necessarily look at things from mary jane's point of view when they criticize that character like because i think she's I, I think within the fandom and especially by marvel you know marvel's editorial she's an immensely over criticized character because no one bothers to look at her properly but like she, she's not being reasonable but you kind of understand why she's not being given what she's been through recently and given the situation she's in right now. Like, I don't I, I don't think really like, well, you promised you'd never be Spider-Man. You know, it's like surely by this point in their marriage, she knows that he's going to go back to being Spider-Man if the situation arises. Right. But again, like you understand why she feels that way. and And like one of the scenes which kind of, I think is the best written scene between their interaction uh, between them that, that encapsulates what I'm talking about is when it's in issue two, when he swings off and they, they have an argument and like she says, you know, you're Spider-Man because you want to be or something like that. You, you don't have to be. And then he says, yeah, but I'm trying to find this guy for the sake of our baby. And then I- I- even the issue itself acknowledges that they're both kind of right and they're both kind of wrong. Which is, yeah. uh, which is, which is the best. Which I think is one of the best examples of how of of the spider marriage being written. And also, like it's just it's just it's just a logical way to write any given uh, marital relationship in fiction or or any given relationship is that you're gonna write it from both people's points of view, uh, and that way you can't. It doesn't turn one of them into like an attachment, and it doesn't turn one of them into just you know someone who's nagging the other. Because you understand where they're both coming from, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, I'm trying to see if I've got anything, just anything else written. Uh, dry rot was weird and felt kind of unnecessary to me. How'd you like my description of him? He was that was hilarious. That was like that was the highlight of the night for me. Like Vladimir Putin fighting a bear, dry rot. <laughs> Super <laughs> <finished>. <laughs> I, can we call it if we if we talk about him again? Let's just call him Vladimir because it just it would be a lot more entertaining yeah. actually talking about. Well, who's Vla- which one's Vladimir? The bear or the uh, or no, dry no, rot? no no dry rot is Vladimir because he's fighting uh, a bear. Yeah, he's fighting the bear. Okay. Uh, uh, he. Uh, but, yeah, I I that that whole I mean. The villain, like again, again, the reason why this doesn't get an A for me is because the villains are pretty weak. Yeah, I mean, with Tendril, I don't think he's a one-dimensional villain because you do hear about, you know, his life growing up, and there's that scene in issue one where he's about to get injected with the thing, and you do see him sort of tear up at the prospect of being normal again. So you can tell that he is suffering. So I don't think he's a one-dimensional villain, but I think he's a very, very far cry from a three-dimensional one. He's like, 
he kind of feels very 90s to me because like he's a ser- he's a super powered serial killer and he's got these tendril things coming from his body so he's he's like he's like man spider or doppelganger mixed with carnage in a way yes very much so but like, like trying to legitimize him by making him a serial killer yeah i and like i don't necessarily i think his visual I don't know if his visual is inherently a 90s thing, because I actually don't mind the way he looks. He looks really creepy, and that's the point. He looks like a, he's, he looks like a man spider made of webs. And yeah. I, I think, actually, that's not... I don't, I don't necessarily want this character to come back, but I think that's a, a nice enough visual that you could maybe do something with it. With, maybe if you like, had another character go through a similar process. Because I, I actually think, like when you look at his power set, at the very least... He actually wouldn't be a bad villain for like Cindy Moon to fight, like because their power, you know, no. yeah, she, no. yeah, her powers is very based upon her webs as well. So, yeah. well, she, by the way, Cindy Moon is just another uh, proof of concept that Dan Slott can create the idea mm. and somebody else can write it better. Yeah, and his ideas, generally speaking, are fairly good. Like even yeah. Superior, if Superior had been, because okay. Like, I know some. I know a lot. I know them the minority in this, but like I really didn't like Superior. But if Superior had been like one arc and then taken place over like a week at most, as opposed to like a year, it wouldn't have been as bad. It wouldn't have been as problematic as it wound up being. Mm-hmm. To it, colla- it, it was going to collapse on its own weight, which is a lot of what happens sometimes. Uh, Even on the Clone Saga, I mean, I mean, yeah. you couldn't you couldn't do the Clone Saga forever. You couldn't do this type of story forever. No. Uh, eventually it was going to revert back, even if you'd kept Ben Riley, stay at the course and kept Ben Riley well, as Spider-Man. I think you could uh, have had Ben Ben as Spider-Man for longer than you did, but mm-hmm. uh, if the lead-up needed to be a lot shorter, the lead-up was the problem, because, you know, yes. the the lead-up was a, over a year long, and then, you know, you only had Ben Riley for one year at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> if, they, if they had cut the, uh, if they had cut the, the, the unnecessary fluff out, mm. um, and had him become Spider-Man at the end of 400, he'd have been fine. Well, I don't know about that because 400 wound up being so good in the first place. You know, you're right. Yeah, if if they maybe like a, a month or two after that, then that would have been the ideal point to transition to Peter uh, to transition to Ben, have him be Spider-Man for a year or so, and then bring Peter back. And and if they'd brought Peter, I think if they had brought Peter back, you know, after the people had had a chance to sort of you know. To, to give Ben a chance a bit more and the conditions under which you they revealed that Peter's the clone hadn't been as, you know, turbulent as they had been. I think there was a better chance that Ben would have been able to stick around afterwards as opposed to being killed off. Yes, agreed. Mm. Um, I'm trying to... I haven't really got anything else to say other than I think Spider-Man with his nerd glasses as drawn by uh, Robertson's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it was definitely, I definitely got the until tells vibe whenever I mm. saw that the first time. Uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't make sense. Cause I don't know why he's wearing the glasses when he still has his spider powers. Cause like he doesn't need them, but yeah, it made more sense at the end of the story than the beginning. Yeah. I, I guess it was supposed to be a thematic, you know, visual thing. Take him back to where he, where he began. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, my, my final thoughts on this series are it's it's worth a pickup. You can uh, read this in, I believe, let me check right quick. I think it's a Ben Riley episode book number three. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, uh, Ben Riley, Epic Book Number Three. So if you haven't picked that up, um, I'm thinking all the all the Clone Saga Ben Riley trades are going to be re-released as a result of this uh, uh, of Clone Conspiracy and everything like that. So it, a lot of them are out of print, but if you can find it on Amazon, check it out. Um, you can probably. You can, oh yeah, sorry. I was, was going to say you could probably find these in the in the, like the quarter bin, but uh, with its nice uh, cardstock cover and the and the needless. Um, Chromatizing of the of the certain elements of the <laughs> oh yeah uh, yeah uh, the the co- the cover that we used in this uh, for this episode is uh, it's got kind of a chromium finish on it and on this on the mask of Spider Man but um, yeah I I enjoyed the series like I said give mm. it a B plus what was your grade uh Alex? it was the same as you I'd give this a B plus so uh, with that, uh, we'll, I guess wrap up the episode because I'm, I'm next episode we'll be covering the onslaught saga, hopefully with the whole cast. And uh, Alex, I appreciate you coming coming in to, to fill in for this episode. I was very happy to do so. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it it uh, was very enjoyable, and uh, and uh, I guess we'll continue to see you on the front page, right? Indeed, you will. Indeed, you will. All right, guys. We'll see you next time. See ya. All right, that wraps up this episode of CSC. I'm Zach Joyner once again, the webmaster of Spidey-2.com and the executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Of course, thanks again to Alex for being a part of the program, but next time, we will be covering the Onslaught Saga. That episode, episode 63, will be covering Sensational 8, Spider-Man 72, and ASM 415 and 416. So check it out next time, in a couple of weeks, actually, the month of March will be the onslaught month but then but then after that could it be the f- clone conspiracy stay tuned mm-hmm.